I think doctors use a term called modifiable risk factor. I've learned because I talk to a lot of doctors now. And so like there's some things we can modify and there's some things that we can't. And so these alarm sounds are very much a modifiable risk factor. And we need to work together and figure out the better set of sounds to use and how to implement them. But it's definitely something that we can do to improve. Because um, I hope that when the time comes and I'm spending time in a hospital or like my parents are in the hospital or people I care about, these kinds of things are in a better state because there's no technical reason why we have to subject them to this so-called beeping hellscape. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the second part of my interview with Professor Michael Schutz. So you're talking about being able to be using different instruments for these sounds and then also maybe um, more decay so that they don't offend your ears so much. That might help. But how do these still remain alarming? I mean, they're supposed to be alarms, right? <laughs> yeah, great question. So at a high level, the central thesis here is not that we need to make hospitals sound like symphony halls. <laughs> uh, no one's ever going to go to a hospital for a wonderful night out. And yes, if all well, the doctors, not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If all the, all the doctors are lulled into this beautiful tranquility of the alarm yeah. sound, like that's, that's not the end goal here either. And neither is it actually to necessarily make the patients have the best aesthetically pleasing acoustic experience. I completely agree the 100% goal of these alarms is to communicate the information that they need to in the best way possible. So my point is that we can learn a lot about auditory communication by looking at the way sound is structured in music. So now there's two issues that are really important as we delve into the specifics of the alarms. Like one, we want to make sure that uh, the messages are compatible with what the doctors already recognize. And then Two, we also want to make sure that the sounds are effective at conveying what they need to convey. And so I think it's actually deeply unfortunate that we refer to them as auditory alarms, which is the way that it's often discussed in the literature and discussed by in these devices. And so if your goal as a sound designer is to design a medical device alarm, well, it certainly seems like one of the worst things you could do is make it not alarming enough. You know, I mean, we don't want anyone to be in the hospital where then like this device is going off and it just sounds like a wonderful, tranquil sound. So no one realizes that means the patient urgently needs oxygen. So, but the thing is- Yeah, wind chimes aren't going to be yeah, across. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just not yeah. going to work. I'll be like, okay, Professor Schutz, you can have this wonderful sound palette in your hospital room as you just, <laughs> yeah, fade away. So the question, it becomes an actual question about how alarming should the sounds be? And so here, the fact that we call them an alarm, I think sets up this confusion where it sounds like something like a fire alarm. Now, alarm is a great name for a fire alarm because they don't go off very often. And when they do, you need to do something immediately. Don't lollygag around. You do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Just get the heck out of that house because something urgent is happening. But the alarms in the hospital are very, very different. So most of the time, they don't signal something that's dire and urgent. Um, at the same time, as a result of that, you know, they're actually sometimes going off hundreds of times per patient per bed per day. So doctors and nurses and patients are surrounded by this cacophony of sounds. 
and a lot of them don't require urgent action. You know, if you're a patient, if you're monitoring a patient, you don't want to wait until the moment when everything is dire with the blood pressure before saying something. So yeah. the alarms go off um, sort of proactively and they're signaling changes in blood pressure or heart rate. So the messages are important, but they don't necessarily require urgent action. And as a result, we have hundreds happening you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember from your TED talk that you mentioned that back in the 50s, there were a lot less of these alarms than there are now. So they made those sounds back when there really weren't that many to hear. And now they're overlapping and there's multiple of them in each room and doctors and nurses are inundated with it all day. I mean, that's stressful for everybody. <laughs> yeah. And it's only going to increase because as the technology, as the technology gets better and we realize there's more things to monitor, we're only ever going to have more. And so this is why I think the problem with calling them alarms comes in. It's, it's not really an alarm. I think it's better to think about it as a way of communicating. Now, uh, researchers call this an auditory interface, which is probably not a term that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, but a visual interface is something that we deal with all the time. So when you look at your phone or the computer screen, what you see is a visual interface, which is a collection of different icons, uh, you know, for Word or Excel or other things like that. And then the way in which they're presented, maybe in folders um, all at once, like on my desktop covered with a million different things. So together that forms a visual interface, which is a way of communicating using our eyes. So auditory interfaces communicate between machines and people using sound. So these medical devices are a classic auditory interface, but it's not just in the hospital. These are used a lot by cockpits, uh, in cockpits, as pilots need to be able to stay in touch with a lot of technology, but we want to make sure they can keep their eyes you know, in front of them. And it's the same with train engineers and in nuclear power plants and a lot of other settings. Auditory interfaces in some ways are preferable to visual interfaces in part because they don't require our visual attention. Yeah. And when you think about all these alarms in hospitals or so-called alarms in hospitals is rather an auditory interface, then I think some of the problems become a little clearer because like imagine if, if the sole goal of a visual interface was to alert you every time something happened, then your inbox, you know, would be flashing with these huge messages every time you get an email and like all day long, it would suck your attention and you would very effectively get every spam announcement, every, you know, supplement thing yeah. that comes in. It would get and, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And so we recognize inherently that the goal of a, in a visual interface is not to attract maximum attention every time something happens but present the information in a way that works for the user. And so if we think about the whole device landscape in hospitals as sounds being an auditory interface, then the question becomes, what's the best way to structure the sound? So not so they're the most alarming, but because they're so they're the most communicative. So where do you feel that that's going? Is it is the decay of the sound where that could go? It, does it matter what the actual instrument is that they're hearing or? These are all urgent scientific questions that we're exploring. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the things that I'm trying to do is just get people to recognize that sound doesn't have to be this bad. And, and it's ironic that there's a lot of sonic things in hospitals we can't control. You know, the floors are going to be very reverberant, but we don't want to use carpeting because we need to clean them regularly. And yeah. so there's a lot of constraints on the sound, which I get. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of ironic that one thing where we have maximum control, these sounds we're creating, seems to be focusing solely on what is in many ways the worst kind of sound we could create. So recognizing that we don't have to be stuck with that is the first step. And at that point, the sky's the limit. 
So I think we can look all over for good ideas about how to design these sounds. And I'm sure there's many ways to go about this, but I feel like looking at sounds from musical instruments cuts through thousands of experiments that might be needed to be done to check is like this overtone slightly better than that, or is this shape slightly better? It's like there's something that works about musical instruments because that's why we build them this way. Now, again, we're not trying to make the operating room sound like a Beethoven symphony, but one thing my team is doing is looking at the specific properties of musical instrument sounds and seeing what if we introduce some of these to the alarms? And this gets back to the other problem that I mentioned, which is that even if we somehow came up with the world's best candidate sounds that have none of the problems that any alarm sounds created ever have, it wouldn't help a lot if none of the doctors and nurses knew what they meant. <laughs> so, Good okay, <laughs> you can change standards, but changing standards is hard and hospitals have invested billions of dollars in medical devices. So the solution space shrinks a bit. And so the question that I started thinking about is, can we change the sounds in a way that one, retains the meaning of the messages, but two, makes the sound themselves better? Essentially, if you think about this in a musical way, is that can we transcribe the current system of sounds to use the same melodies, the same rhythms and pitches, but just with different instruments? So if you recognize a melody played mm -hmm. on a flute, you could recognize that melody played on a clarinet, like that kind of thing. Now, there's a lot of things we could do with instruments, um, I started with percussive sounds, partly because that's sort of my natural habitat, but also sure, because I think yeah. they have some advantages in terms of clarity uh, and, and pleasantness. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we've done is just take some standard sound sequences and generate them with these more natural decays on each note. So the message stays the same. You, if you recognize the old alarms, you'll recognize the new ones immediately, but it's just a lot less annoying. Yeah. And so we've shown in different experiments, you can significantly lower the annoyance. Um, and it's important to note that this doesn't come with some of the potential costs. So it wouldn't help a lot from a public health standpoint if the sounds are less annoying, but now people can't remember what they are. <laughs> or if they're less Good annoying, point, but yeah. Now it, yeah, it takes longer to learn. Mm -hmm. So we found there's no no uh, harm from a learning perspective or from a memory perspective. And we're actually doing some work now finding that you know, looking at whether we can detect them as well as the traditional sounds. And it seems like, yeah, there's no problem there. And in some cases, we can actually detect them better. And they're always less annoying. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio dash branding dash strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while, totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. Are any of them in use now or is it still being experimented on? Yeah, so the first paper we have on this just is actually set to come out in October. Oh, wow. So okay. This is, so this is brand new. Yeah. Yeah. And the way I see this is we can sort of divide the problem areas into 
two components. There's like the scientific aspect. And then what I think of as like the political aspect, sort of maybe lowercase p political. Okay. Um, yeah. So one is figuring out the best set of sounds. And that's the first set of this. And that's where I think I have the most ability to contribute. Like the second part is the policy change, talking with device manufacturers, like upgrading things in hospitals, like all of that, that takes a skill set beyond, you know, where I'm coming from. Yeah. And so I'm trying to connect now with people working in those spaces and those industries, uh, people like yourself doing these great things with audio podcasts, because that political part is only going to get addressed when there's broader interest about what we found on the scientific front. So the information's out. As I gave this TED talk, uh, overviewing problems with the sounds in hospitals and talking about what my team is doing, called it death by beep, because uh, that's the thing that we're trying to avoid. And uh, so we're working on that now. And I think there's a lot of very interesting stuff that can happen. And that sort of comes first. So unfortunately, right now, no, there's not a um, pleasant sounding hospital down the road where you can use that. But we wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And as much as I'd like to see these sounds changed, and I think this is going to be a very long term process, like I'd be the first to say that right now, if someone said, I have a magic wand, Professor Schatz, we can wave this and put your sounds in all the devices. Like, I don't know what the best sound would be. Like, we are in the early days of showing here's some benefits from this. Like, here's what we can gain by manipulating that. And so there's a lot of really interesting work to be done on a basic auditory perception perspective to try and figure out the best sounds. And as we do that, I think it's important to engage in these broader dialogues to start to think about once we sort of know that, how do we actually put that in devices? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's still a lot of experimentation to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's definitely headed in the right direction, which is nice. You know, since we haven't changed these since the 50s, it's probably time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly when they started. So uh, around that, yeah, I would say. So whenever the medical instruments themselves were created, I'm assuming. Yeah, well, actually, it's I mean, I started looking into this historically. It's just sort of fascinating as a side project. And I think the early alarms were like bells attached to machines. And and then, you know, then they went to these computer beeps. But it's interesting because in the earliest days of these things, they were actually using percussive sounds. <laughs> they were better sounds. Really? We, okay. We see that in experimental psychology as well. Like the early days of sound perception involved people like hitting plates behind a screen mm -hmm. and, you know, clanking other things together. And then we moved away from that because with the computer, we could control things better. And in the research setting, I think that makes a lot more sense. The control was a big problem. But like in terms in the hospital setting, no one really cares about the exact number of milliseconds that the tone beep happens. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I think because these are the sounds used in research, it sort of feels like those are the sounds that should be used in these highfalutin, high tech medical devices. And so the way I see this is, is that this multi front push to try and advocate for the use of more complex, more musical sounds in auditory perception, try to do some of the basic research to show the benefits of using insights from musical sounds in these devices, uh, and then also interfacing you know, with industry and, and all the things that academics are not usually good with connecting with um, <laughs> to try and get this broader dialogue push. Because mm -hmm. I read this interesting article in the, the Times, I don't know, probably about two, three months ago about like how major public health initiatives get movement. And we tend to think of things like vaccines um, or like the whatever the homogenization of milk or they, they discovered there is like the major breakthrough is the science. And certainly that's my bias. Like 
I think that people who discovered these things like have done really amazing things and made incredible contributions to society. But when you look at the timeline of adoption, we're often talking about decades or multiples of decades before the major public health benefits are realized. Sure. And that's because the actual scientific discovery is, well, it's crucial. It's a small part of the education, you know, the public health aspects, getting governments to recognize these things. And so, like, I see this as sort of a parallel of, like, I could do all the work that I could possibly do in the lab, but things aren't going to actually start helping with saving lives, um, with avoiding these deaths by beep, with improving the working conditions for doctors and nurses who, among other things, are, are burnt out because they're surrounded by <laughs> what my future mother-in-law called a beeping hellscape in these hospitals. Yeah, and, yeah especially now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And so I think perhaps maybe this is a moment when we're more aware of that mm -hmm. because unfortunately more people have spent more time in hospitals. Uh, but there's no reason that the sound part needs to be that bad. And yeah. there's a lot about the hospital experience that we can't easily improve. Um, I think doctors use a term called modifiable risk factor. I've learned because I talk to a lot of doctors now. And so like there's some things we can modify and there's some things that we can't. And so these alarm sounds are very much a modifiable risk factor. And we need to work together and figure out the better set of sounds to use and how to implement them. But it's definitely something that we can do to improve. Because um, I hope that when the time comes and I'm spending time in a hospital or like my parents are in the hospital or people I care about, these kinds of things are in a better state because there's no technical reason why we have to subject them to this so-called beeping hellscape. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, out, out of curiosity, because I know, and this this might be a total uh, like 360, so like you, you tell me, um, but you have also mentioned that the importance of sound is overlooked in sound design. And I'm curious, to, like, like, where did that come from? Was that part of your, your medical psychology experimentation or was that something else? Yeah. So it seems like a ridiculous oxymoron, right? Like, why would you overlook the importance of sound and sound design? So when we look at what's being done to improve these alarms now, there's a lot of people all over the world with brilliant backgrounds in different areas of research looking at what we can do, because it's pretty clear there's some really bad problems. And the things that they're looking at doing are often things like, okay, maybe we can make the alarms sound less frequently because maybe we don't really need all these. Maybe we could monitor for certain combinations of states and only alarm then. Maybe we can use like headphones for the doctors so that they're hearing them and the patients are. There's all these solutions and they all deserve, you know, exploration because the problem, I mean, this affects literally everyone on planet Earth. So the magnitude of the problem is large and all these solutions are, are helpful. But I find it curious that there's been very little attention to the quality of the sounds used in these devices. Yeah, it's a good point. There is a revision to some of the standards and they're looking at changing some of that. But if you look at what people are manipulating, there's surprising little attention to the quality of the sound, which is sort of ironic because we're talking about sound design. And it's it's doubly ironic if you look at other things that have lower stakes consequences. For example, you know, my smartphone or, you know, the sounds that Facebook makes when you type messages. Consumer facing things mm -hmm. recognize that there's better ways to use the sound and deal with this. And so well, I, there a lot of them are run by advertising, too. So, you know, they want to get your maximum attention and they want to keep it there. Right. Well, exactly. So yeah. when you're when you have a quicker development cycle and you're directly interacting with customers, there's much more incentive 
to design things in an ergonomic, you know, pleasing way. Exactly. Now, but you know, there's not consumer feedback on the sounds for medical devices. And and I understand why. Like, I mean, these things are incredibly complicated. They do amazing, miraculous things. And so, yeah, the beep it makes at the end when something goes wrong doesn't seem like what deserves the major focus of your engineering time. So like, I get that, but like, I'm an auditory guy. I feel like sound often gets a backseat in terms of our attention. And there's a I lot totally of- I totally agree. That's, yeah, you yeah. Know, the whole reason behind this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I think this stuff is so important. And it's been yeah. checking out some of the ones you, you did with, uh, you know, interviewing all these great people and sound because we need more attention to this. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can be in a better sounding world. It just takes a little bit of attention, but it's actually only a little bit. Like, it's not like it's super difficult to make these different versions of sounds, you know, and it's not like it's much more expensive to have a device that needs some like amazing speaker, you know, with like a surround sound in your <laughs> medical devices. Yeah. It's like, these yeah. are pretty simple manipulations, but thinking a little bit more about how we can improve them with sound will have huge benefits because hospitals all over the world have many of these devices and the number of devices is only increasing. And so even a small change in the improvement of these can have a major impact on human health. Hi, this is Craig Acock. I listen to Jody Krangle's podcast all the time. Great guests, great information. Um, I really enjoy listening to what they have to say and what, how the questions she's asking of them. Um, the only issue is I wish they were longer. <laughs> Thanks, Jody. Yeah, I love it. Definitely. I mean, we need to look into this like now because yeah. <laughs> it's going to, as you say, the adoption of it is going to take 20 years, could take longer. We don't even really know. So, yeah, but uh, I think people are looking into it. There are definitely hospitals that are taking um, the idea of soundscapes into uh, consideration for the health of their patients. Um, there's a kids hospital in Helsinki, I believe, that's working on, yeah, uh, the International Sound Awards gave them an award for sound design of the hospital, which was really fascinating. But, you know, they'll do this for kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want them to do it for adults, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's really amazing because there's so much we can do to help. And it's it's funny because we often think about that as sort of like the decoration or maybe like the bells and whistles, you know as mm -hmm. opposed to something core to the treatment. Whereas like here, like the device sound, that can really be an important part of the communication. And I think the language itself that we use to talk about the frills is revealing. You know, if we're talking about the things that are nice, but not necessary, the literal term are bells and whistles. We're actually talking about the things that produce sound. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm guilty of saying that myself sometimes. And so I think the second place or third place nature of sound and design is really unfortunately baked in. And like sometimes when we're looking through the literature for what we need to know about what's been discovered in design, you know, we'll find like a, a review or we get, you know, a bunch of articles back from a search and there's 50 articles and like 49 deal with visual design. And like one also mentions, we think some of this applies to sound. And so <laughs> yeah, we're very visually oriented creatures and a lot of our cortex, there's more devoted to um, visual processing, uh, arguably than sound. And if you look at research departments all over, there's typically a lot more uh, happening in vision than there is in sound. We're visually oriented people and there's nothing wrong with that. 
there's a lot that's important to get right about the visual design of these interfaces. But I think there's a strong case to be made that we need more attention to these auditory ones because we can actually leverage quite a bit of benefit from doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even when we're talking about multi-sensory experiences being more memorable, you know, maybe that, you know, that definitely will help when it comes to alarms and, and things that people need to pay attention to. So, yeah, I, I, I really hope that this ends up going where it should be going. <laughs> yes, me too. Before it's before it's too late. Uh, yes. Yeah. Before we're both in there worrying about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what are you working on right now? You mentioned that you have an article coming out in October. Is there anything else that's on the docket? Yeah. So we're doing some experiments now looking at detection because it wouldn't be great if we can, the sounds are much more pleasant. We can recognize them, but you just don't hear them because they now blend into the background. So we're trying to look at whether or not changing a sound to what I call the percussive tone from the flat tone makes it harder to detect. And we're doing that two ways. One is just with some general background noise. And another one is with a concurrent speech task, because it's important for these doctors to be able to communicate, you know, while also monitoring for the sounds. And so what we found, um, well, it's not yet uh, not yet out there for the public, but for your listeners, it's good to know that mm -hmm. uh, it's not any harder to detect these percussive sounds than the other ones. And in some cases, it's actually better. We're actually doing a better job of recognizing them. I think they pop out a little bit better from mm -hmm. the noise uh, without necessarily being more annoying. Yeah. Now, the sort of intuitive way to make a sound more detectable, which we see all over in the literature, is crank up the volume, you know, like because, of course, everything's more detectable. Oh, my goodness, though. Isn't that going to make it worse? <laughs> well, in the, it's sort of like when you go to a party, you know, imagine you're talking to one person outside. Um so you don't have to talk real loud or maybe one person in a room. You don't have to talk real loud because they can hear you. But now five other pairs of people come into the room to start talking. Well, you got to talk a little bit louder to get over the background noise, which means everyone else has to talk a little bit louder. And now you added more people. So now everyone's louder. And so the problem with just turning up the volume is it works well for that one specific thing. But in the operating room and the ICU, we have many, many systems. And so if each one is just a little bit louder, well, none of them have actually achieved their goal because now they're all louder and they're all still masking each other. We've just forced patients to have even more of these sounds around them. I'm actually curious about that because if you had a hierarchy of these machines, so certain ones that are more important than others, and the ones that were more important were louder as opposed to the other ones, then the volume of it would let you know how serious it is. Yeah, so... Importance becomes somewhat context dependent, like the blood pressure might True. be more important here. Yeah. And so, but the way I think of this is, okay, so yeah, we have four things and we have to be able to monitor all of them at once. And it's sort of a problem because they can't all be louder, but go talk to a composer, like ask your composer friend, is it possible to have four instruments working together in a way that we can hear them all, well, you know, of course. and they, yeah, look at you like you're crazy. It's like, have yeah. you heard of a string quartet or <laughs> yeah. like, look at what's encoded in a symphony when you hear the TSO play. So like at a high level proof of concept, it's entirely possible to have many different sounds that work together if we just arrange them properly. Use it's, different instruments. Yeah. I mean, so we could do that or the, the term here would be the different timbres. Mm -hmm. yep. So they could be that. They could be in different spaces. Like if you talk to different, um, like a frequency spaces, if you talk to recording engineers, 
they can tell you millions of different ways in which they can clarify sound in different bands of frequencies so that you can hear different things at once. So there's not like one particular composer or one particular album that I'm pointing to saying we need to make the operating room sound like this. (laughs) But I think there are solutions to some problems that have been worked out very well in music because it comes back to thinking about music, among other things, as a form of auditory communication. And all the thing, many of the things that are helpful in solving the problems of communication about hearing different instruments at once, letting certain things pop out, making it sound not annoying, are things musicians have been working on, even if they haven't been thinking about it in those terms. And this takes me like all the way back to my training and my earliest realizations that psychology is important in music and realizing that it's not that musicians haven't thought about these things. Musicians think about these things all the time. We just often don't use the scientific terms. So if I'm talking about connecting with an audience, essentially I'm talking about emotional communication, talking about how gestures can shape perception, about how body movements play a role in all these things. They map very clearly onto the kinds of issues that psychologists research, but often just not using those terms. And then unfortunately, a lot of the insights that come from this this wonderful psychological research don't make it into the performance community, oftentimes because they're based on paradigms that don't really scale very well. So if you gain a lot of insight using a bunch of tone beeps, it's hard to get musicians excited about that when you hear these sound sequences and it's, you know, beep, 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 boop, boop. You know, it's like, yeah. I figured out how emotion works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little different. <laughs> so the context matters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sound matters. And it, mm-hmm. it seems like a silly proposition, but that's what gets us back to this question of like, has sound been overlooked in sound design? Yeah. Like in the commercial world, obviously not. You know, sound designers are very sensitive to these things. Uh, but in these kinds of contexts, it has. And I think to some extent in research, auditory research, it has as well. Because sound often gets treated as what we call a nuisance variable. Something that, mm, you yeah. know, it's annoying. You just want to make sure you vary it properly. So like, I don't know, headphones might be a nuisance variable. It's like, yeah, we'll give everyone the same headphones in this experiment so we don't have to worry about if different headphones contributed to the result. And that makes sense. Or like, you know, extraneous extra sound, we'll put someone in a sound booth or we synthesize the sound so it's not different people playing the clarinet. It's always like the one. That makes sense. But it's almost like sound itself has become this nuisance variable. It's like, what kind of sound is it? I don't know, a thousand hertz tone beat. You know, that way it's simple couldn't possibly matter if we used like a musical sound or something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, some, and sometimes it doesn't. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some research questions where you get the same answer, whether you're using a tone beep or some, you know, natural sound. But there's certainly ones where you don't get the same answer. And so this is, I think, a really important issue in the auditory perception community. Um, and so I've started asking when I give talks about does sound matter in auditory perception research? And I admit this probably sounds like the most ridiculous question anyone has ever started a keynote talk with <laughs> at an auditory conference. But once you unpack it and look at the surveys, the things and these other things, when you come back to it, it's like, I don't know what people necessarily believe about if sound matters in auditory research, but we don't really appear to be acting like it. <laughs> like, it's true. And so I think it's something to grapple with. And one of the great things about science and scientists is that in principle, we're always open to looking at things in different ways. And even if we're more comfortable with this paradigm or this is the way things have been done, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't room for improvement. And I really appreciate that about scientific inquiry. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, 
<laughs> uh, wow, you kind of blew my mind here. <laughs> so I'm loving it, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with people. Excellent. So uh, I'm I am going to link to your your TEDx talk because definitely I think that's important for people to uh, hear and see. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, how else would people get in touch with you if they wanted to talk with you about this? So we've got a lot of information on the Maple Lab website, uh, maplelab.net. I'm sure you do a, a link to that as well. Sure. Um, you can always send me an email too. I've been doing a lot of great chats with sound designers, podcast uh, folks, random fellow audio geeks uh, who have seen the TED Talk, which I love because I feel like we're few and far between and we need to stick together. And uh Mm-hmm. Like recently, I've been thinking in particular about just the fascinating work that Foley artists do. Oh, yeah. And how how often they have this innate understanding of sound that I think the research community would benefit from. And so I'd be very interested in talking more with folks with backgrounds or interest in that as well. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, you know, you're hearing it. If you happen to be a Foley artist, go ahead and get in touch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, thank you so much, Michael. This has been really enlightening and interesting, and I really appreciate your being here. My pleasure, and thanks so much for doing this. I think it's really important to get people thinking more about sound, uh, and so this is great. Thanks. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time... 